It is um, a joy to be here. Whenever I come, it's, it's like I feel like I'm coming home. So just a, a, a deep gift for me to um, have this time with you here this weekend. Um, ben had um, told me to, gave me the, the first Peter passage, first Peter chapter two. I'm starting in, in verse two. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to that. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. He said that in this Easter season, you've been looking at how um, we are to be a distinct people, a people who are radical even in our work of reconciliation locally and globally. And what we find in this reading in 1 Peter chapter 2 is actually so necessary for us to engage and understand this work. Now, we, we need to see, first of all, that, that the Apostle Peter is writing to a people who have been suffering. Uh, people who are uh, experiencing persecution. And he is, um, he's reminding them that actually they have a living hope, that, that there is a living hope, which means it is a hope that cannot be taken away, that there is a life that they have that comes through this hope, and that actually this living hope is meant to be the lens through which they see everything. And then they come then to this section we have in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, uh, verses 2 and 3. He says, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He is um, in that last section of that we just read in verse 3, saying, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He is intentionally echoing what you find in Psalm 34 and verse 8. Uh, Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is an intentional reference because the people would have understood what David was writing. Because David actually wrote these words, taste and see that the Lord is good, at actually one of the, the worst times of his life. When he was at a low point, he had still been um, fleeing from King Saul. He's been anointed king, but he's not king yet. Saul is out to kill him. David actually flees to the pagan country around him. And, And then the king recognizes, oh, isn't this David? And David, to save himself, he he actually pretends he's insane. He acts like a madman, drooling and everything, so that he can escape. And when he escapes, he goes back into a cave and he's by himself. This is a low point for David. That's when he writes this psalm. That he actually then can say, in the midst of that, where he is at this low point, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is so easy when we are in those places of of suffering or trial to live out of a story of diminishment. And and by referencing this psalm, Peter is reminding them that there is a deeper story. And it's a story that they actually know. This is not saying taste and see, saying now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That that when we think about taste, this is not like you've had a little, you have a little sip, you know he's good. This is more in the sense of you've experienced. Now that you know that he is good, even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your persecution, you know that he is good. Now, um, good is sort of a weak word in our culture. I'm I'm good. Like, I'm not great. I'm good. Good in our world is sort of like better than average. But when you see good in Scripture, you have to think back to to the days of creation where God takes what is chaos and empty and He fills it with life and beauty. And He says, and it was good. 
Good biblically carries with it a, a sense of, of beauty and delight and abundance, things just being right. It carries with it a sense of, of generosity. And so he is saying that, that even in the midst of what you are experiencing, the suffering, you know this beauty, you know this delight, you know this abundance and generosity, things just being right. And, and part of what we see that Peter is moving towards is you could say... Um, you are what you eat, right? So you've tasted, you know the Lord is good. Therefore, your lives are to reflect his goodness. It's not just that you know and experience this, but actually your lives are to reflect something of God's beauty and his abundance and his joy and his delight, things being right and his generosity. He says that following what we see in verse two, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now, Peter is using this form, uh, this, this image of milk, different than, say, the Apostle Paul did or the writer of Hebrews did. They used milk in the sense of basic elementary things, like, you guys have been Christians long enough. You should be beyond milk, right? You should be eating solid food. That is not the context for Peter as he's writing. Think of, of instead what Jesus says in Luke 18, where he says, you must become like these littlest of children, like these babies. The kingdom of God belongs to them. So this is something that he's saying is for all believers. It's not that this pure spiritual milk is only for the newbies in the faith, but it's actually for everybody. And that the picture is just as a baby craves its mother's milk, you are to crave this pure spiritual milk. This is similar to the image you have in, in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? You remain in me, there's this connection. And that the branches draw this divine life from the vine. It's that same kind of picture. But the, the picture of an infant nursing is, is actually more intimate and it carries more of that sense of, of relationship. The picture here is, is Jesus nurturing and caring for and protecting us just like a mom nurtures and cares for and protects a newborn. And in this, we grow into our salvation. That, that picture of growing into our salvation is saying that, that by this pure spiritual milk, we actually live into what Jesus has done for us and who he has made us to be. So this is not like, this is pure spiritual milk for a little bit and then you're done. Right, that we are to continually come to Jesus. There will never be a time where we don't need this pure spiritual milk. So why verse four then says, as you come to him, as you continue to come to him. But interesting in verse four, the image changes from a, a, a mother nursing to the image of a living stone. Jesus as the living stone, as you come to him, the living stone. And, and then there are Old Testament uh, passages quoted that, that speak to the stone. This is a picture of, of who the Messiah is, that he is the stone the builders rejected. But he then becomes the, the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the stone that actually determines everything about the building that is built. The stone that, if it's spoiled, the building's spoiled, right? It is a stone that actually holds all things together. He says, and this stone, it's living stone, and it's chosen, and it's precious. And that there are then two groups of people that are separated simply by their response to this, this stone. Right? Those who trust in him, trust the Messiah, and will never be put to shame, 
and those who stumble and fall, those who are disobedient, and and therefore there are those who are marked by shame. Verse 5, though, is interesting. As you come to the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is the living stone, right? He is the cornerstone, the foundation stone upon which everything else is built. But as we come to him, we also become living stones built into a spiritual house. It's that picture you find of of we reflect his glory and being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. Living stone, he is alive, therefore as we come to him, we are alive. He is chosen and precious, rejected, but chosen and precious. Therefore, we should know that even if we are experiencing rejection by the world, we still are chosen and precious. That we are those who who are being built into a spiritual house, that, that picture of the temple where God's Holy Spirit dwells. And just as people will respond to Jesus, the Messiah, the the living stone, either by trusting in him or by rejecting him, stumbling and falling, the gospel that we carry, not just that we carry, the gospel that we are meant to embody will mean that people will either respond to who we are in Jesus, trust in Jesus, or they will stumble and fall. Let me say it this way. You might be the only gospel some people will ever read. We are to embody that. We are living stones built into a spiritual house. And therefore, our lives are actually meant to convey something of the, the grace of God, the story of God, the love of God. That we are to be a people who are distinct and different, and we actually should rejoice and delight in that difference. That we have an invitation, we have an opportunity to live lives that are different, to live lives that are shaped by the values of the kingdom and not shaped by the values of this world. That we have the opportunity to be those who are in the world but not of the world. Which means that we are not seeking to placate, we're not seeking to get along, we're not seeking to blend in, we're also not seeking to be obnoxious. Right? to be superior, to think we get to determine who's worthy and who belongs and who doesn't, right? that we are that living stone and that as we, as we embody the life of Jesus, we will be the only gospel that some people ever read. Hear this. This is not a pressure to perform. Right? This is not meant to be a burden that weighs us down. This is about who we are. What we do rises out of who we are. Peter, in this section, he is actually focusing on the identity of the people of God, who they are. There is this this deep understanding that actually who we are is essential. And so as we crave the pure spiritual milk, as we grow up into Christ, we are actually growing more fully into who Jesus has made us to be. And in that, that is the primary foundational piece. Only when he has spoken to that does he therefore say, now this is how you live in the world. He doesn't begin how you live in the world. He begins with who we are, what Jesus has done, who he's made us to be. And therefore, this is how we live in the world. Is why you have verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That, that picture of declaring his praises, right? That is a, a prophetic and a priestly role. That is, again, you might be the only gospel that somebody will ever read. But he begins with, you are a chosen people. Chosen carries with it a sense of intention. Divine purpose. This is, this is God's divine purpose in choosing you. There is a chosen out of. We are rescued out of the dominion of darkness. We're brought into the kingdom of his son. But we have to understand that, that this picture of being chosen, God is not stuck with you. Do you remember like maybe in elementary school and there's kickball and like if you're ever like the last person picked, how you felt? That's my story a couple of times, right? This is not saying, okay, I'm the last person picked for the kickball team and they're stuck with me. They didn't want me, but they're stuck. Right? It is not that sense that God is stuck with us, that he is sort of making do. This is the sovereign Lord of all creation, that you are who you are meant to be, where you are meant to be, when you are meant to be, in order to be his kingdom presence. There is nothing insignificant about who you are as a child of God. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If you have been rescued, if you've been made a child of God, you are actually much more than you think you are, and you are much more than the world around you thinks that you are. Now, again, something to, to understand the magnitude of chosen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this, that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Before anything was created, God chose you which is an amazing statement because that meant before he created anything, he knew we were going to rebel and he knew what the cost would be for us to be rescued and he still went forward. I don't know if I would have done that, right? But this speaks of his grace and his love. But think of it this way. If he chose you in him before he made anything, then when he created all that is, he had you in mind already. He created all that is with you in mind. There is something glorious that we need to understand about being his chosen people. There is, there, is a, there is a depth of that that should anchor us no matter what we face. And then he says you are a, a royal priesthood. He's drawing from the language you find in Exodus or in Isaiah or even in Revelation that we are a, a kingdom of priests. Now, we don't have the mediatorial priesthood that you had in the Old Testament, but even if you look at what the priesthood is, that one of the things the priests were meant to do in teaching and in prayers, that they were meant to reflect God's glory to others and to bring others into his presence. So this being a royal priesthood is not just for the clergy, those who wear the funny collars. Right? This is for all of us, that this is who we are as the saints of God. We are doing a confirmation service today. When I came on Friday, I did an ordination service. When I came then on last night, we did an ordination service. What we're doing today is an ordination service. It is the most important and fundamental ordination service that there is because we are first and foremost a kingdom of priests. That, that is the ordination that lasts into the new creation. All of the other orders that we have of deacons and priests and bishops are actually meant to serve the people of God, to step into who we are as those who did not come to be served, but to serve. Those who are, are, that we are those who actually help people step into who we are as a kingdom of priests. 
that that is the foundational, fundamental piece, that, that actually we are all laity, right? Because laity is just laos, the people of God. We are all the people of God. And so what we need to understand is that there should be no division between the clergy and the laity, because we're all laity, Right? There is no division. It is not that, that Lance or Timothy or, or Ben or I or Logan are somehow holier than you are. If you know us, you know that's not true. Right? It's, it's not, there's, not a, there's not a division. There is a distinction. Right? We have a role that we fill in the church, but that role is actually to serve you and to raise you up. A royal priesthood. Certainly there's a piece of that, that that we are priests of the king, right? That he is the king. But it's royal actually in a deeper level. That we become sons and daughters of the king of kings. So as his children, we also are royalty. This is an important piece for us to remember because in the world, it is the nature of the work that you do that determines your value or your worth in society. A doctor carries more value than, say, a landscaper. That is the way that the world understands and works. But what we need to understand that it is not the nature of the job that gives value or worth to the person. It's actually the nature of the person that brings value and work to the job. It is who we are as a kingdom of priests that actually brings the worth and the value into what we do. It is is this understanding that whatever you do as a child of God now is royal work because you are royalty, right? You are a son or daughter of the king of kings. It is not that the work gives you value or identity. It is that you bring worth to the work that you do because of who you are as a child of God. There's also this understanding. We begin to understand that. We begin to see that that sometimes the questions that plague us, the Bible doesn't seem to speak to because it actually isn't that important in the scheme of things. Where we can agonize, what am I supposed to do? What's the job I'm supposed to have? And actually the Bible doesn't give us a lot to say, this is the job you should have or this is the job you should have because that actually is not important in one sense. What is, not, what is more important is actually who we are in that work how we live into the things that we step into doing. So it it is not the work itself that is important. It's how we do the work as children of God, how we engage in what we do, knowing that in everything we do, we are outposts of the kingdom of God, that we bring the kingdom of God in all that we do. And he says that we are then a holy nation. Take nation for a moment. That, That word is people. And it is saying that, that we are not now determined or divided by the countries we come from or ethnicities, that what actually defines us is that we are holy, apart, uh, spreading across uh, countries, ethnicities, and time, that we are a holy people. That is a thing that marks us. And holy literally just means set apart for special purposes, right? The opposite of holy is not unholy. The opposite of holy is common. Right? There are things that are set apart for special purposes and things that are, that are there for common use. Some of you would, might have um, holy dishes right? that only come out when company comes over. Right? That, that is the difference. Something that's set apart for special purposes and things that are for common use. Now, if we understand 
um, if you look at holy in the Old Testament, everything in creation was divided into two categories, things that are holy and things that are common. Right? Common's not evil, it's just not holy, not set apart for special purposes. Now, if you take the things that are common, are, that's further divided into two categories, things that are clean and things that are unclean. Unclean means that they're marked somehow by what it is to be in a fallen world. So if you take the category of what's unclean, that's further divided into two more categories. There is a sinful unclean, which means that our sin, our rebellion makes us unclean. But there's also an unsinful unclean. In the Old Testament, if you came into contact with a dead body, that's not sinful but you're unclean because now you're marked by death, which is not a picture of what we have in the beginning uh, of the purity and the life of God. So you can be unclean, but not sinful. And all of the processes in the Old Testament are there to move us out of the sinful unclean or the contamination of the world unclean into being those who are clean, purified. But then there is the further work of those who are then cleaned and purified are then set apart and made holy. And, and holy, again, is set apart for special purposes. This is what Jesus has done, right? He moves us out of that place of being contaminated by the world, moves us out of sin, and he purifies us. We are no longer unclean, that we are then clean. And then we are actually made holy. We are set apart for special purposes, for his purposes. You heard the echoes of this in John 14, that, that the things that he does, we're going to do, and we'll even do greater things, right? That his purposes become our purposes. And we see that his purposes are actually the restoration of all things. Confirmation class yesterday, looking at Romans 8, 19, and, and it says that all of creation is longing, groaning, waiting for the children of God to come into their own, to be revealed, right? There's something about who we are that is actually a part of the restoration of all things. Or if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And he has given to us the message of reconciliation. Now understand, giving us the message of reconciliation, it's not that here's this thing that's apart from us that we hold, here's the message, that actually we as a holy people set apart, we embody that message. We speak it because we embody it, because we've experienced, because that is who we are. And he says God's special possession. Again, this is echoing what you find in Exodus where, where the Lord says, out of all the nations, I have chosen you to be my treasured possession. Not because of what you have done, not because of, of somehow you're worthy of this. This is purely by his grace and mercy. That speaks to our value, right? God's treasured possession. The world might not see it. In fact, John says that the world cannot see it. They cannot understand it. But there is, there is a value, uh, 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 there is an, uh, a depth of the value of who we are that is greater than anything the world can offer. Right? The world cannot give us the value that Jesus has given us. Now we need to understand that, that there is a value and a worth that is given to us, and we have to be careful with words. We can speak of we're not, we can't be worthy of salvation. 
in the sense of we can't earn it, but just because we can't be worthy, that doesn't mean that we are worthless. If we were worthless, then the blood of sheep and goats would have been enough to rescue us. Instead, it took the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, for us to be rescued. Or if you look at at when Jesus says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And you think of it as, as things in a balance. And on one side, you have all the world with its glory and its power and its strength. And on the other side is you. What is worth more? He's saying you are or we're not worthless, it's just that our worth is held captive by sin and death and Satan, and therefore we are rescued by Jesus, and the worth that we have can now be lived out because it is restored. It's sort of like um, the Apostle John, I don't know if you've ever been struck by this, that when he is writing about himself in the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple. He's talking about himself and he's like, I'm the one that Jesus loves the best. I'm his favorite, is really what he's saying. Does that ever, did that ever catch your attention? It's a bold statement. But John, especially if you read the epistles, you see that he understood that God's favor is not limited. It's not that there's a limited amount of favor. So if, if Ben has more favor, that means there's less for me. God's favor is infinite because he is infinite. So Ben can be his favorite and I can be his favorite. Right? There's an infinite amount of favor. This is why we can carry an incredible intimate amount of worth and you having great worth doesn't mean I have less worth. Right? That there is a depth of a worth and the value that we have that comes from who God has made us to be. Our value, our worth, our identity, it is not rooted in us and what we do to try to earn it or establish it or create it or keep it. Identity and value are things that actually can only be received. They are things that are given to us. And so our identity and our value comes from Jesus. It's a gift from him. It's based on what he has done for us. And that means it cannot be taken away. It is not that you have great value, but when you mess up, you've now lost your value and you're worthless. No, our value, our identity, our worth is not based on us and what we do. It's based on Jesus and what he has done. Therefore, it cannot be taken away. There is this understanding that Jesus came as one of us and when he came to rescue us this was a rescue that was a full and complete rescue it was a rescue of all of who we are and therefore it's meant to be a rescue of all of what we do it's a restoration of the image of God in us of who we are but it's also a restoration of what we are called to be as God's presence God's image God's glory in this world Our identity in Christ determines how we live in this world. That is the picture that is given in the New Testament. So when we forget who we are, we don't live as we're meant to live in the world. It's actually knowing who we are in Jesus that determines the trajectory of our lives. This is why the New Testament isn't giving us list upon list upon list of these are things you do, these are things you don't do. When you come to this situation, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. Oh, you know what? It's not an issue now, but in a couple of centuries, you're going to have this problem. Here's what you should do. 
It doesn't give us lists. It tells us who we are. It tells us our place in the kingdom serving the king. And that shapes all that we do. That his work of reconciliation, his work of, of wholeness and life is actually meant to determine how we live in every circumstance. That all that we do is meant to be about this work of reconciliation, this work of wholeness. This is part of, of what we learn in Rwanda. There is in the Western church, the work of reconciliation has been narrowed simply to being, we need to tell people about Jesus so they don't go to hell. Essential, necessary, we need to do that. But if we take the work of reconciliation and make it only that, then we are preaching an incomplete gospel. Right? We are meant to bring his wholeness and reconciliation into all aspects of creation. So that work of wholeness and reconciliation means that we are those who stand against injustice. Right? That we are also meant to be those who care for the least of these. That is part of his work of reconciliation. And that is actually gives us a witness. It gives us a door into the world. It gives our lives actual credence where people outside say, now I want to hear about what you believe, right? That the gospel is lived out through us and that gives us then an opportunity to invite prodigal sons and daughters home because we are about that work of reconciliation and restoration in the world. This is why the world, the flesh, and the devil work overtime to convince us that we are not chosen, right? That we're just sort of accidentally here that we're second-class citizens. This is why the world, the flesh, and the devil work to try to convince us that we are not a royal priesthood, right? that, that we need to strive to be worthy, to establish value, that it comes from what we do. It's not that we bring worth and value to what we do. You know, try to convince us that we're not holy, that there's nothing special about who we are. We're not set aside for special purposes and, and that we aren't a holy nation so that we devolve into tribalism where we begin to set limits around um, ethnicity or how you vote or countries or whatever instead of understanding that we are a holy nation, the people of God, not meant to be divided from one another. And then the world, the flesh, and the devil will work to convince us that we are not his special possession. Right? That God just tolerates us because if we believe those lies, we will be tentative in our faith and we will not engage in the work of reconciliation because we will not understand that we are a distinct people and therefore we will not want to risk being radical in the work of reconciliation because we are living from a place of diminishment. When we are living from a place of diminishment, not knowing the glory of who God has made us to be, then what happens is we live our lives seeking to find ways that we cannot feel less than about ourselves. What are the things that I can do so that I can, I can deal with this feeling that I'm, I'm never enough, I'm never going to be good enough? And when that is true, we actually don't crave the pure spiritual milk. And we crave the affirmation and the satisfaction and the distraction that the world offers. And then we are not a distinct people. And then there is nothing radical about how we live. We aren't engaged in the work of wanting to see prodigal sons and daughters come home because we are, we are too self-conscious and self-focused. This is why 
as we come to confirmation. We pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint and empower those who are being confirmed. Confirmation is not about the people being confirmed, uh, confirming what they believe about God. Confirmation is actually God confirming what he believes about them. That they would understand that they are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That we then can engage in the restoration of all things. That, that we understand who we are and then in that we are empowered and equipped to be the church to be God's presence, to be his kingdom in this world, that there is a place that we know that we are distinct, not because we have done something, it's not by our efforts, but it's by Jesus and what he has done in making us sons and daughters of the king. And therefore, we can engage in that work of restoration in a place of confidence and joy, not obligation and burden. And that hope that marks us, that confidence, that joy that marks us is missing in this world. If you walk in this world with the joy and the hope of Jesus, people will be drawn to you and you will have opportunities to engage in that work of reconciliation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who rescues us. Father, that by your grace, you make us your children, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would work deeper in us who we are in you. Father, that we would know that we are chosen, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Father, that in being rooted in who we are, what you have done for us, we have the foundation to then live out of that and it shapes everything that we do. That we would not be a people marked by grasping for things that you have already given us. That we don't need to grasp for worth or identity. We have that in Jesus. Father, that in that then we would know and take joy and delight in being a distinct people that we would then be willing to sacrifice, that we would be willing to live a radical life for that work of reconciliation, to bring your wholeness, your life into every aspect of our lives, into every aspect of the world. Father, we ask that you would empower us for this so that prodigal sons and daughters would also come home through the gospel that we carry and embody. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.